I would ask that you please stand for the reading of God's word. We will be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 9, 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him to a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And the crowd saw it and they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You may be seated. Good morning. So how is everybody adjusting to the sudden change of seasons? Just think, just, just a week ago, a week ago tomorrow, uh, I was, had enough wisdom, knowing we had some other things coming up soon, to get out and take the trampoline down. That was a, less than a week ago. And now this glorious white wonderland is ours. Did you get all your fall chores taken care of? Or are you frustrated that you missed the opportunity and now it's too late? Or perhaps, like me, you're a bit relieved that the snow has come and now things like raking leaves and other outdoor projects that you didn't want to do anyway are impossible and you can no longer have to feel guilty about them. Whether or not you enjoy the change of weather with the anticipation of holidays and family gatherings that it brings, or if this weather makes you want to curl up into a ball of blankets and not leave the house for six months, I'm thinking of you. We have reason to be thankful for each and every change of season. Each new season marks the mercy of God on this earth until all things are fulfilled at the end of the age, just as he promised Noah after the flood, he said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living thing, every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So we see these regular seasons passing through. Don't just lament the loss of what was and the uh, long torture that we have in winter for what will be. 
but give God glory for his faithfulness that even though the, the intention of, heart, of every man's heart is evil continually, that he has been merciful on this earth, reserving his judgment until the fullness of the redeemed have been brought into the fold. So even as we, we pray, come Lord Jesus, even as we say, Father, your kingdom come, we rejoice with the mercy of God. So as we prepare to continue on in our study of Matthew this morning, I ask that you would once more join me in prayer. Father, we are very needy creatures. Even as I think of just the weight of having crowds following around our Savior day after day, begging and pleading for healing, for cure, for for food, for water, for everything that they need, just constantly pleading for what they need. Cannot help but see us ourselves in that same kind of pleading, that day after day we cry out to our Lord, help us. We are needy people. But we give you the glory knowing that we stand only by the power of your spirit within us. We mortify sin only by the power of your spirit within us. And we are conformed more and more into the image of Christ only by the power of your spirit within us. So Father, continue the work that you have begun. Continue to be faithful to us until you have completed this work and until we are made perfect in Christ. The glory of your name. Use this word this morning to that aim. May this church work toward that aim. For the majesty of the name of Christ. Praisings in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as we begin chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel, we read that after getting into the boat, he crossed over and came back to his own city. Well, if you recall back in Matthew 8.18, at that point, Jesus had told his disciples after crowds of people had been surrounding him where he went, when they found out where he was, they, they surrounded and came to him and pleaded for, for mercy, pleaded for healing, and he had time with so many people around him. After all of that, those events were taking place in Capernaum, he desired to get away. So he told his disciples to ready the boat because they were going to cross Galilee. Like he often needed to do, Jesus desired to be alone, to have some intimate, special time with his disciples. Of course, if you remember what came after that, this passage across Gal the Sea of Galilee was anything but an intimate, calm time where they could build relationship, where they could discuss, where he could teach them in that close setting. Jesus and his disciples were on that boat and headed across the sea, yet that voyage proved terrifying. 
Remember the words of the disciples as they cried out to Jesus, Lord, help us, we are perishing. We are in the process of dying. And then that, that exhausted Messiah, so completely tired and worn out that he could sleep in the midst of a storm like that, he was woken from his sleep and he rebuked the storm and it was calm. When they finally did reach the other side, Jesus and his disciples, they were met by demon-possessed men that had been a terror in the area. And these demons, these many demons that possessed them, recognized who Jesus was. They knew him for who he was, even if the people did not. And they begged Jesus, pleaded, just don't, don't destroy them, just send them into the herd of swine. And so he did. And then Jesus and his disciples soon found themselves very unwanted in that region, and they were begged to leave. So this time to get away with the disciples encountered massive storm and then tumult. And then once again, they had to go back to Galilee. So just returning from this, this restful excursion is where we find Jesus and his disciples in our text this morning. Just think about all that the disciples learned about Jesus in this very short period of time. First, they, went, they witnessed his ability to heal all sorts of sickness and disease. Then they saw his authority over the storm, his authority over weather, that he could calm it like that, the raging storm made peaceful. Then they watched as even a legion of demons recognized who he was and cowered before him, begging for just a momentary mercy. So they saw the authority of Jesus over sickness and disease, saw the authority of Jesus over nature, then they saw the authority of Jesus over unclean spirits. Yet, as we will see in our passage today, there was more about their master they still had yet to learn as the true breath of Jesus' authority is revealed bit by bit throughout the Gospel of Matthew till it culminates in Matthew 28 with the proclamation that all authority, all authority not just on earth, but all authority in heaven and earth is Christ's. Well, as Jesus came back again into Capernaum, we see him really picking up pretty much where he left off, or should we say the crowds of needy people picked up right where they left off. Though if you read Mark's account, it seems that Jesus may have had a few days to collect his breath before everybody realized he was there, but as soon as they realized he was there, he was once again crowded by throngs of people wanting something from him. The first thing that Matthew records for us after they get back to Capernaum is a paralytic man being carried to them, carried on his bed. Well, I know we have talked about this before, but the contrast between these crowds as Jesus traveled throughout Galilee always seeking to be by him, coming from all the places around, wanting to be near him, Longing to be near him, 
that crowd, this darkness between that crowd and the crowd that was around him as he stood before Pilate couldn't be more extreme. It says something truly about the human condition that the same man in the same region could be hailed as a miracle worker, be hailed as a great prophet, a great man of God, and then so suddenly, without even a hint of fault on his, on his part, could be dragged before the officials, crucified even at the cries of let his blood be upon us and our children. Knowing the rest of the story, it's hard not to remember the homicidal throng calling for Christ's blood as we see these crowds of people following him. The zealous way that they sought to be near him at this point. It's hard not to contemplate just how that happened. Hard not to come to the conclusion that even though there was great crowds of people pressing in on him everywhere he went, the vast majority of those who were so desperate to see him were drawn only by the benefit they believed they could receive from him. Or the spectacle, this, this great once-in-a-generation spectacle of the man who came in from the wilderness speaking with such authority. And so predictably as Jesus returned and, and his return was made well known in Capernaum, the sick were once again brought to him for healing. And some of the usual suspects were not to be left out so they could keep tabs on him and report back to what they saw. Well, as is true in a number of places between the different Gospels, Matthew, in this part, is providing us a shorthand uh, narrative of the events that took place. Mark and Luth, Luke both give us more context of this event of the paralyzed man being brought to Jesus. Turn with me to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and we'll see a little more context there. Mark 2, 1 through 5. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So even though Matthew left out this broader context, the extravagant lengths that these men went to to get this paralyzed man into the presence of Jesus that he might be healed, we know for sure that Matthew was aware of it. So it, it's not escaping Matthew or even Matthew's expectation that people would, being, when being reminded a part of the story, would remember the whole. But we are not told in these accounts of the relationship between the four men and the paralytic. Yet they prove to be true friends in the effort. Just think about it. How many people do you think would care enough about someone else 
that they would carry them on a stretcher around a city just to be near someone. And when they couldn't get near that healer, that they would then carry that man on the stretcher onto the roof, break apart the roof, and then lower the man down. That's, that's not mere nicety. Those are the actions of a true sacrificing friend. Just the act alone of carrying this man to where Jesus was would have taken great effort and been a great testament to the care that these men had for the paralytic. But much so the more with the extravagant measures that they took of raising him up to the roof and then lowering him down. They would not have gone to such great effort if they did not believe that Jesus was a healer, that Jesus could and would, in fact, heal their friend. No doubt these men had heard of this miracle worker, this miracle healer in Capernaum. They believed that he must be able. Yet this man's malady was such that he could not, as all the other sick people had been doing, just get up on his own and go. As a paralyzed man, he did not have the advantages of modern wheelchairs that even if you can't move your arms, your hands, or your legs, that there are other means that they can use where somebody can get themselves around. He was completely at the mercy of other people for his survival. Unless Jesus happened to just walk by him, he had no means of his own for getting to the healer. So these men had to bring them, bring him to him. Like I said, those friends had faith that Jesus could and would heal this man if they could just get him near. So they acted on that faith and took him, bed and all, to where Jesus was staying. We might think that Jesus, who is so often had all these crowds pressed in on him, might be a little annoyed, might be a little put off that somebody would fight their way and and do damage to someone's property just to be able to drop somebody in his lap. At least we might think that if he was more like us. Yet rather than being offended or bothered, Jesus saw the faith that was demonstrated in these men's action, and he responded. See, there is a strong link between a display of faith in the Gospels and Jesus' healing. The first we have already seen in in our study in Matthew, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. Remember back the Roman centurion who had called to go find Jesus and but then did not, because his servant, his favored servant was sick, yet he did not consider himself worthy of Jesus to come to his home. He was a Roman. So he understood authority, and he told Jesus, I know authority, I, I have authority. He believed Jesus had authority over sickness. So he said, if you will but, but claim that he is well, if you will but say that he must be well, he will be well. Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion and his favored servant was healed that very moment. 
Looking ahead in chapter 9, we will find an account of a woman who had a bleeding discharge for 12 years. A woman who had been enduring pain for 12 years that no doctor had any means of being able to help her with. She managed to work her way through a crowd as Jesus was walking by just to get close enough where she could reach out and touch the fringe of his garment. She had faith that if she could just touch his clothing, that she would be healed. That he had, he had that kind of power and healing touch, just even through his clothing. Jesus took note of the woman, and he told her that her faith had made her well. Just a few verses later, we'll find two blind men following after Jesus, crying out for him, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus asked them if they believed that he could make them well. And they said, yes, Lord, we believe. And again, he said, because of their faith, they're healed. Later on in chapter 15, we read of a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, following after Jesus. Her daughter was sick. She knew of no other way that her daughter could get help. So she followed after him, crying out for him to have mercy to help her. The disciples tried to get her to go away, and she wouldn't have it. She persisted. She even bore insult from Christ himself. It's not good to give the food to the dogs. Yet she persisted. But even the dogs may get scraps if they fall to the floor. Again, Jesus said that her faith had made her, would make her daughter well, that that kind of faith was not being seen among those natural branches that should have recognized their Messiah. This, this dog, this common Gentile, saw, believed, and Jesus responded in healing. One more example we'll consider, but with a somewhat different result. In chapter 17, we read of an account where the disciples had tried to cure a man, try to rid a boy of a demon he was, who was possessed. And then the disciples came to Jesus because they couldn't do it. And after rebuking the demon, once again, showing his authority over them, he told the disciples that they had failed to help their, the boy because of their lack of faith. So this strong connection throughout the Gospels of faith and resultant healing. Now I want to make an important distinction about this pattern that we have in the Gospel. This isn't teaching us that if we simply have enough faith, we can be freed of each and every sickness or disease, or that we can heal anybody else if we would just believe well enough. Beloved, we do not escape the troubles of this life by the strength of our faith. That isn't the promise that was made, and that isn't what Jesus' disciples experienced. His disciples, all of them, faced persecution, faced troubles. Almost all of them to the point of their death. See, there are many who teach that if you will just believe something enough, 
then you can be cured of your sickness. You can be cured of your illnesses, your diseases, or that you can escape your troubles. That if you have any of those in your life, first and foremost, you have a faith problem. But I believe that what we are being taught through these examples throughout the gospel, similar to what we will see in our passage this morning, is a physical action which is mirroring a new spiritual reality. Namely, the physical healing that followed the profession of faith made by these number of people throughout the gospel, that physical healing represented the spiritual healing that everybody who has faith in Jesus receives. So the physical representing the spiritual. Well, after seeing the faith of these friends that lowered down this paralytic man into the room with Jesus, Jesus addressed the paralyzed man himself, not the other man. And he said, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He used a familiar expression, a son of somebody that would be younger than him. A common, familiar kind of way to speak. I can't help but think that there might have been, must have been a small part of that man who is in his mind just the excitement building that he might walk out of that room. He came there to be healed, and this is the man who can heal. He wanted to be healed, and he finally gets in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. A small part of him must have thought, really? That's it? That's what I get with all this effort of, them, of my friends to get me here? You're just going to say that my sins are forgiven? That's a pretty carnal thought. Yet I imagine that if you or I had been confined to a mat for our lives and then heard of a miracle worker who healed every sort of ailment, who could even raise the dead to life, that we might not immediately be a little disappointed if instead of healing us, he promised us something else instead. Even if what he promised us was something far greater than what we had hoped for. See, this man hoped for physical restoration. He, he could not walk. He could not get off of his mat, which meant he was completely dependent on the mercy of everybody else around him. There weren't comfortable homes for him to live in. He was essentially a beggar that people out of, out of religious devotion to God, as a mercy of God, set up through the Old Testament law made sure that he had enough to survive. But he did not have a thriving life. He had no hope of having happiness and completeness in life. He hoped for physical restoration, and yet Jesus gave him something that he needed even more, though he may not have realized it. He forgave his sins. See, God often answers our prayers by giving us something far greater than what we asked for. 
or by giving us something that we didn't even know we needed. You see, the healing of this man wasn't the primary concern for Jesus in this encounter. The healing of the paralytic man isn't the main point of this passage. As strange as it might sound, Jesus commanding a paralyzed man to get up, pack his bed, and then walk home, and the man actually being able to do so, that is not the most miraculous thing that happened in that room on that day. So as he so often does, Jesus comforted the man's sorrows without promising that his troubles would be removed from him. It was as if to say, you may be physically broken, but take hearts. Your sins are forgiven. Your body is broken, but your soul has been made well. Beloved, we need to learn the lesson that comfort in our time of troubles does not need to come in the form of our troubles being removed. That's not what Scripture teaches us to expect, how we will be comforted in our time of troubles. In this life, our troubles are not removed. Sometimes they are grown, expanded. We cannot fall into that trap. God often won't remove our troubles from us because he has a greater purpose for us through those troubles. He is completing in us the He's completing in us the suffering of Christ. He is using those troubles, that pain, that torment, that sorrow to make us more like Christ, to make us to be able to share more in Christ. So he won't, he often will not remove those troubles from us, yet he has promised to be our comfort and our strength. In that culture in the first century, it would have been natural for people to assume that somebody who was blind or paralyzed or inflicted by some other kind of major physical malady, that they must be in that condition because of sin. Maybe it was their sin. Maybe it was their parents' sin. And to be certain, a connection between physical affliction and sin is possible. And is even biblically identified as that in certain circumstances. It is possible for sin to cause physical symptoms. Sometimes it happens as a direct result of the sin. There are certain sins that people commit that destroy their bodies or break their minds. Yet there also may be a physical symptom from sin as a result of judgment or as a result of the Father's discipline. That is possible. That is in keeping with the testimony of Scripture. However, there is nothing in this narrative to indicate that this man's sins were responsible for his physical condition. Nothing to emphasize here that it was his sin that needed to be forgiven so that Jesus could heal him. In fact, while Scripture does tell us that sin can be the root of an illness, 
The only other time that this question is brought up in the Gospels is in John chapter 9, when Jesus specifically denied that the blind man was blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents. And not only did he deny that it was because of their sin or his sin, he said this man was born blind so that the work of God might be on display. There was a purpose in that man's blindness so Christ could show the work of God, that he could get glory for God through his healing. And how true that turns out to be in our text this morning as well. Well, Jesus told this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Well, to our modern evangelical sensibilities, that doesn't sound nearly as radical as it did to the people that were in that room. We are used to hearing the gospel proclamation. We're used to hearing the promises that sins can be immediately forgiven if a person would simply believe. Before the death and resurrection of Christ, the only concept that anybody had of how sins could be forgiven was tied to the sacrificial system, specifically tied to the Day of Atonement when all the sins were put onto the goat. That scapegoat then was released. They would have had no concept of the forgiveness of sins in any other way, especially not just because somebody said it. The Israelite of that day would have understood the connection between the sacrificial system and the forgiveness of sins. Even though Hebrews tells us, the author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats never provided for the forgiveness of sins, this was a people who had learned to trust in the ceremony of their religion rather than in the mercy and the promises of God. So Jesus' promise that these men's sins were forgiven would have caught this crowd off guard. It was a much more radical statement than to tell a man who was paralyzed on a mat, get up and walk. But what is so wonderful about that statement, that your sins are forgiven, is just why Jesus was able to tell this man that his sins were forgiven. Only God has the ability to forgive sins. Under any covenant, that fact remains. Even under the sacrificial system, even when people didn't understand that it wasn't the blood of the animals that provided forgiveness, they still understood that it was God that must forgive their sins. That's why they made the sacrifice to God, to be pleasing to God, that by the shedding of blood, God might forgive. Only God can forgive, because sin ultimately is an offense against God. So it is his alone to forgive. The claim of Jesus to be able to forgive sins points to the truth of who he is. He is the Son of God. He is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. 
The claim of Jesus that he was able to forgive sins points forward to the mission that had been placed before him on this earth. The very purpose of his taking on human flesh and being made like us. He could forgive because he would take on himself the fullness of the guilt of everybody who would believe. So as we look back and we know the whole context of the gospel, we know what happened from the beginning and from the end, and we have the letters of the apostles explaining it again for us. We cannot hear of the promise of sins being forgiven without our attention being instantly pulled toward the cross and the shedding of our, blood, our Savior's blood. The crowd around Jesus that day would have been absolutely shocked by that statement. Matthew's audience would likely have known part of the rest of the story, and we're just needing some help understanding how these pieces fit together that led ultimately up to the fateful events of Christ's death and resurrection. So what was the response to Jesus making this bold claim? Remember the scribes, anytime there was crowds gathered, the scribes wanted some eyes and ears present, wanted to make sure they had a pulse of what was happening so they could report back and not be caught unaware. Said, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Well, to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has had some strong words for the scribes and Pharisees, but he has not yet come into face-to-face -face conflict with them. This is in more of a, a cold war, so to speak. He has not directly attacked them, such as John the Baptist did, when he saw the Pharisees coming and he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to escape the wrath that is to come? John had been direct. Jesus is going to be direct. But to this point, it has mostly been that he was teaching against the leaven, the teaching of the Pharisees. This instance shows the heightening of that conflict that will develop and be a consistent theme throughout the rest of the gospel, ultimately resulting in the plot to capture and kill the Messiah. The scribes continue to keep tabs on Jesus and look for ways to criticize him, to look for ways to expose any failure that they might find in him, any accusation that might just bring him down a little bit, that they might maintain their influence. Because the greater popularity that Christ enjoyed, the greater influence that he enjoyed, meant that there was a less of that influence, less of that popularity to go around for the religious leaders of the day. So there were scribes gathered in the crowds, not because they hoped that they could learn and be educated by Jesus, not because they were hoping to be healed themselves or because they brought their sick grandmother with them so that she could be healed. Now they came to try to catch him in some kind of mistake. They talked to themselves and they accused Jesus of blasphemy. Jesus didn't need superpowered hearing in order to know what the scribes were thinking. 
He showed his ability to read the thoughts and the hearts of men. He knew what their intentions were. It says he heard, he knew what was in their thoughts, and he's asked, why was there evil in their thoughts? He had the authority even over the secret and hidden places within the inner man. We should be clear about this. When Jesus offended people, he did it on purpose. Sometimes I offend people by accident. Yeah, shocker. Sometimes I offend people on purpose. And sometimes then it's even a righteous reason. And sometimes it's my flesh coming through. I am fallible in the way that I offend people. Yet Jesus never offended by accident. It was never a miscalculation. He never felt bad about offending somebody. It was pointed. It was on purpose. He knew exactly what to say to drive his point home. He knew exactly how to say it to elicit the reaction he wanted from them. And in this instance, he chose his words to expose the evil that was in the hearts of the scribes. Jesus could have easily healed this man without any controversy. He had healed many throughout the Gospels. Many people had been healed without any controversy. This seems to be just about the most offensive way that he could have gone about it in this instance. Except for maybe if he would have somehow managed to do this on the Sabbath. So Jesus was deliberate in his choice of words so that he could push to the surface the thoughts and the intentions of the scribes so that he could, he could bring this doubt to the surface, this questioning of him having this authority to be able to forgive sins. He wanted this conversation at the surface to make this a point so that he could show his authority, the extent of his authority, as it extended not just over the physical sickness, not just over the malady of the body, but over the spiritual sickness, the malady of the soul. He orchestrated this, upon the event of this paralytic man being brought to him so that he might show that the Son of Man had the authority to forgive sins. Well, after Jesus rebuked the evil thoughts of the scribes, he continued, For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? He's not talking about which one has less syllables, or if one is, gets caught on your tongue a little bit easier and it's just difficult to say, that's not what he means. Well, first off, what is easier to do? Is it easier to forgive sins or is it easier to heal the body? Of course, that might sound a little strange to us because I don't know of anybody here that has the ability to do either one of them. Even the greatest surgeon doesn't heal. He simply works to get rid of what is unhealthy, to give the natural processes of the body a chance to heal itself. Perhaps with 
the addition of drugs or different kind of medicine in order to help enhance the natural processes of the body. So healing is a miraculous act. What about the forgiving of sins? Can you forgive sins? Surely we can forgive somebody when they have offended us. But sin is ultimately an offense against God, not us. Can any man forgive an offense against God? Is any man in the position to offer forgiveness on God's behalf? Can, they even, can men even find a way to help that process? Can we do anything to, to help God forgive sins? There is nothing man can do to forgive the sins of men other than just to point him somewhere else. The forgiveness of sins is a miraculous act. So I didn't answer the question yet. Which is easier, to heal or to forgive? Well, I think in this, in this context, this conversation, it is easier to heal sickness than it is to forgive sins. The one is aided by natural design. And the authority to heal even miraculously has often been granted to men. We can do things to aid in healing. We can do things to fight infection, to perform surgery. We can do a lot of things to help the body heal. But there is nothing we can do to heal the soul. The forgiveness of sins as evidenced throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, required that day by day, year by year, there would be a massive, gory scene around the altar testifying to the cost of the forgiveness of sins. Unless you have been around animals that were being butchered and cut open, the smell of blood and of organ... You wouldn't be able to get it to understand what it would have smelt like in the temple as the sacrifices were being made. And add on to that, hot weather. And continually throughout the day, animals being slaughtered, blood spilling and pouring. It would not have been a pleasant thing to been around. It would have been more disturbing than just a butcher shop. That reminded the people day by day of the cost of sin, of what forgiveness took. But of course, and you might have already caught this, Jesus didn't ask the scribes what was easier to do. Jesus asked the scribes what is easier to say. Which one is easier to say, that is, which one is easier to promise? Is it easier to claim that you have the authority to forgive sins or easier to claim that you have the authority to heal? That is a different matter altogether than which one is e easier to actually accomplish. If I were to stand here today and I were to tell you that I had the ability to forgive sins, how would you prove me wrong? Of course, I am not saying that. 
But what evidence, apart from the clear testimony of Scripture, what evidence could you possibly provide to show, to prove that I was lying if I said I could forgive your sins? How could you know that they weren't? How could you know I didn't have that authority? It is a statement that is not easily or soon proven wrong. However, if I were to say to everyone in this room that all your sicknesses are healed, any disease, any physical affliction, migraines, upset stomachs, joints, all of that healed, would you not easily be able to prove me false? You would know instantly. Migraines would still be pounding in the skull. Joints would still be aching. You would know instantly if I claim the authority to heal and healing did not happen. So the claim, the ability to heal is a claim that is easily and quickly proven wrong. So, actually, forgiving sins is more difficult than forgiving or for, than for healing the body, yet it is easier to say, it is easier to promise that you have the ability to forgive sins than it is that you have the ability to heal. You can only be proven wrong on one of those, at least in this life. Jesus claimed the ability to forgive sins. And then when pressed by the scribes on the issue, he responded, For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And this is not just him forgetting how to finish a sentence. This is Jesus responding to the Pharisees. And then we see a little bit of narration by Matthew, then we see Jesus, instead of addressing the Pharisees anymore, speaking directly to the paralytic, he says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man obeyed. Jesus knew that in the ears and the eyes of those around him in that room, just the claim of the ability to forgive sins was not going to be enough. He wanted to prove that what he claimed was true. But how can you prove something that cannot ultimately be tested until death or the day of judgments? Well, his proof, what he offered as proof, was to make the harder promise, the harder claim, the one that could be tested, could be proven, to make that claim and then to be able to follow through with the raising of the paralytic man. Scribes did not believe that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, so he moved on to claiming an authority that could not be faked and immediately was shown true. The scribes could not deny his authority over the body because the man got up and walked out of the room. 
It wasn't that big of an area. Most of these people would have recognized this man as the one lying beside the road on his mat begging. All of them knew who he was and saw that he got up and walked out. They couldn't deny the authority of Christ over the body. Made it much more difficult when he had proven that authority not to believe the authority he has over the soul. Jesus used reason, he used logic, to show that it was easier to make a claim of something that could not be proven false than it was to make a claim of something that could immediately be tested. We've talked about that. It's easier to promise something that nobody can call you on than it is to promise something they can immediately check you on. So Jesus was using logic, pointing that out, and then he made the bold claim about something that could be immediately tested, something great, not just a small display, something wonderful and great. And by his ability to follow through with that word, he testified to his authority to forgive sin. And so the physical healing of the paralyzed man was the visible proof of his claim that he could, in fact, forgive sins. So the physical healing, that physical reality that took place was the visible proof of the spiritual reality. Well, how did Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? As we have said, he is God. How can he forgive? Because he himself would bear the fullness of the wrath and judgment in his own person that everybody who he forgives deserved, that everybody who he forgives had coming to them, the fullness of it, so that there was nothing left upon them. He had the authority because he had made the purchase for that forgiveness. It was his to bestow so then after proving his point and calling out the scribes, after embarrassing him, them, them by reading the evil in their hearts and exposing it before the entire room, then Jesus did exactly what the paralytic man had been desiring from the beginning. He healed him, and he told him to rise. I'm quite confident that he didn't heal him until the end because if the man had been paralyzed and healed at the beginning, I don't think he would have still been lying on his mat. So he was sitting there for however long that conversation was going on, trying to understand what does it mean that this guy said my sins are forgiven when my body is still broken and I'm lying here. And after rebuking the scribes, Jesus says, get up, walk. He gave him everything he had hoped for after he had given him so much more. In most circumstances, the healing of a man who was paralyzed, who had been lowered down into a room by four men who had carried him onto a roof and pulled part of the roof off so they could layer him, lower him down in front of Jesus, in most circumstances, that would be the crescendo of the story. This man was lowered down and he was healed. Here is almost an afterthought. Important mostly at least to us, I can't really say what was most important to the man who could walk, important mostly to us at least, as evidence to prove the radical claim that had just been made by Christ 
that he did in fact have the authority to forgive sins. So how did the crowd respond? They responded in the same way that everybody responds when they are confronted with the awesome authority and power of Christ or of God. They were afraid and they gave glory to God. Fear is the right and natural response to confronting the wonder and the power of God. I fear we have all but forgotten this truth. In scripture, men couldn't even be confronted with the power of an angel without trembling on their faces and seeking to worship. Much more so when they came face to face with the power of God himself. How trivial we so often treat the workings of God. Giving glory to God and honor and praise is also the right and natural response to confronting the power, the kindness, and the mercies of God. The immensity of his splendor and the greatness of his power ought to make us fear. That's a good, natural response. Then the vastness of his goodness and kindness to us should take that fear and then channel that and redirect that back into worship of him. He is no less vast, no less powerful, no less terrible to behold, yet even so, he is our comfort and our joy. Christian, that drives us to worship. Christians do not fear God less because we know him more. We fear him more, but we also know his love and kindness. Therefore, we trust him. And we do seek refuge in him. It drives us to worship and give glory to God. The crowd wondered that, the, that God had given such authority to men. They had heard of men being able to have the authority to heal before. God had used people in the past to heal sickness, to heal diseases. But this was something different. There can be no doubt that Jesus really did walk on this earth as a man in human flesh. He really was truly human. No one who encountered Jesus in his earthly ministry believed anything else. Not one person who encountered him in his earthly ministry thought, this man is a spirit. This isn't really a man. He's not really here physically. They knew that it was obvious he was a man. What he got in trouble for all the time was claiming that he was something more than just a man. People knew that Jesus was a man, but what they failed to recognize was that God's Messiah needed to be more than just truly human. He needed to be truly God as well. God had given man the ability to forgive sins because God had become man. And God gave the race of men the ability to be forgiven in that man. Rightly did the crowd fear and give glory to God. And may we respond as faithfully 
as we witness the wonder and power of God in our midst. And beloved, may we learn to pray for, may we learn to earnestly expect to see God's power in our midst. God forbid that we would be content with our own strength, with our own power. May we pray to see God's power and his kingdom all around. Father, we do give you glory and honor and praise. Father, help us to see you as you are. Help us to learn what it is to righteously fear you, to understand your vastness, your power, your glory, your majesty, the terribleness of your presence. Let us experience and see that also knowing your kindness. That we might repent of our offenses against you knowing that there is forgiveness in Christ. Help us, Father. Keep us. Strengthen us. Be gloried in us, through us, for the wonder of your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.